Okay, you pray with me as we come to God's word this morning. Our Father, we thank you for the words of the Bible which make us wise for salvation. Thank you that as Christine has testified to your word, we're not saved by good works, uh, but by your loving kindness and mercy toward us, our God and Saviour. Thank you that this is done through the work of Jesus. And so as we consider this text today, I ask for your help that your word would become clear, uh, that Jesus would become real to us. Uh, Lord, would you open our hearts to believe too, our eyes to see, our ears to listen. We commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going through a series in the book of Genesis at the moment, up to chapter 9. We're at the end uh, of the flood saga. And this chapter is interesting. You probably saw it or heard it uh, as it was just being read out. It begins with a blessing and it ends with a curse. Uh, And that really shows us what life is like in many ways uh, for all of us. Uh, life is full of what seem to be blessings and also seem to be curses. In the uh, book by C.S. Lewis, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, there's uh, really two types of people uh, who are the most prominent characters uh, in the book. Uh, First, we have the uh, Lucy and Edmund, Uh, who are two children who've previously been in the land of Narnia uh, and they've had their own life-transforming experiences, their own humbling experiences, which have made them into people who live a life under blessing. And then there's another character whose name is Eustace Scrub and the author says he almost deserves the name because Eustace, uh, it seems, is always under a sort of curse. Uh, He's always uh, conniving, always complaining. And so as he's drawn into an adventure, into the magical land of Narnia through a painting of all things, he's sucked into this land with uh, his cousins, uh, Lucy and Edmund. Uh, Eustace's life just seems to go further and further downhill. It seems that he is under a curse But as you listen to his musings, because as as you go through the book, uh, he has diary entries. And he's always filled with self-pity, with pride, and with blaming others. And so it seems that his cursed life is almost of his own doing. We'll get back to C.S. Lewis and The Voyage of the Dawn Treader a little bit later. So what I want to talk to you this morning about in our text is the blessing of God and how to receive it. We see from the beginning uh, that God blessed Noah and his sons uh, and gives them a number of instructions, actually, for how to live. And so the first aspect of the blessing of God and how to receive it is to live under God's word, to live under God's word. And we have three key commandments in our text The first is uh, God has given this responsibility to Noah and his family, to all of humanity, because this began actually in Genesis 1 at 28, to steward the earth, to look after it, to take care of it and develop it. We actually see this uh, in uh, humanity because we have this constant drive for progression, don't we? We're always seeking to advance ourselves. 
In fact, most of our language is about progress, whether it be technological, medical, moral, societal, cultural, whatever it is, we're always aiming at progress. Have you wondered why? Why don't we just keep things as they are? Why do, does humanity not like the status quo? Because God has built it into our nature. He has set a command for all of humanity to do what? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so after the flood, after this catastrophic event of God's judgment upon earth for human evil, God is hitting the reset button almost. He's starting with one family again, but he's saying, go and continue the commandment that I gave the first people, Adam and Eve. Our job is to steward the earth. The second uh, commandment that they are given is to honour the lifeblood. So we see this in verse 4. It says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is blood. This is actually the first time in the Bible that we see animals uh, being used for food. Again, a gracious blessing of God. If you can imagine that um, Noah and his family have just come off the ark, uh, food would not have been as plentiful as it was before. And so God is graciously blessing them by allowing them to eat animals for food. We know animals like animal food is good for us, has protein, fats, those kinds of things in it which are good for us to eat. And so God has blessed them and enabled them to eat the animals. And of course, the fear of you and the dread of you shall come upon every beast of the earth. Why? Because we're eating them now. So that uh, makes, in fact, that's, that's what the scholars say. They say the most likely reason the fear and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea is because we're eating them. And so, of course, they would run away. And in fact, you know this anecdotally. If you go to a national park and the animals are very friendly, it's because we're not supposed to eat them in national parks. But then if you go out in the wild, the animals run away because they know we're there to eat them for the most part. However, we are not just to take advantage of life. We are to honour the lifeblood. Verse 4 again, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is the blood. Now, this is the only ancient culture in the world. Okay, so this is unique to Israel, unique to the Christian tradition in the Old Testament, that uh, God's people are not to eat animals when they're alive or with the blood in them. They're supposed to let the blood drain out. Why is that unique? Right? Unique in the Bible as opposed to every other ancient culture. That is because it's a sign that life is in the blood. God has given life to animals. And so the idea of blood is directly connected to life. And so here we see that the responsibility, the command of God is to respect what God has provided and not to misuse it. And one of the ways we are supposed to do that, according to the text here, is not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, we might, maybe in the modern West, tend to think of, um, for the most part, uh, eating live animals uh, or eating uh, flesh with blood in it as dirty. But that actually, we only believe that because, for the most part, the West has been formed on Christian tradition and culture. We just come out of the Bible. Many other cultures don't have that rule, and so they don't have that aversion to the blood. So, steward the earth, honour the lifeblood, and thirdly, personal responsibility to uphold the image 
of God. We see this in verse uh, five and six. And it says, and for your lifeblood, again the blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And verse six, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood be shed. Shall his blood be shed? For God has made man in his own image. This is where we get, again get the idea of the sanctity of human life. But God really zooms in here and says, you are personally responsible for your own sin. You are personally responsible for the way you treat other people. You're personally responsible for how you respect or disrespect, how you honour or dishonour what the image of God, for God made man in his own image. Humanity has a special place. Right? This is why we have rules for murder, right? For uh, human beings, but we don't for animals. This is why human beings don't eat each other. It's called cannibalism. This is why there is no problem for us eating animals. Why? Because human beings are made in the image of God. There is a clear distinction. We're not to disrespect, we are not to abuse animals, but human beings are different. And so God has given us a personal responsibility to uphold the image of God. And there are severe penalties for abusing the image of God, even here in the text, capital punishment. Now, this idea of the image of God actually is played out throughout the Bible. It seems that as you go through the Bible, these foundational commandments are built upon. So by the time we get to Exodus, the Ten Commandments, they're really built upon these principles here. And so what we see is that the idea of the image of God is that humanity is supposed to be honoured, respected and cared for. We are to, be, we are to protect ourselves and we are to protect one another. And that is why it is so shameful when we get to the end of chapter 9 and we see Noah getting drunk. Right? This is such a strange end to this chapter. It seems all exciting. And Noah's, um, they've just got off the ark. Noah's the most righteous man in all the earth, so he was saved uh, by God from a worldwide catastrophe. And then by the time we get to the end of chapter 9, Noah himself has fallen into shame. And his son was trying to make a mockery of him, it seems, and to shame him further. And so, of course, this uh, results in his father proclaiming a curse uh, upon uh, the son of um, Ham, who was the one who shamed his father. The only reason these things are sins is because God recognises the image, the image of God in his people as being important to be respected and honoured. So what does this tell us? Well, this tells us a few things, that all of these commandments remain, actually. Uh, we're still to steward the earth. Everything in the Bible is still built on these commandments as we move forward. Humanity's responsibility is still to, as we see in our text, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And for the most part, we're doing that. In many ways, humanity is still fulfilling this commandment. Of course, we are often trying to kill each other. We're often trying to abuse each other. We're often um, doing things that go contrary towards it. But for the most part, humanity seems to be progressing in various ways. And again, this is a blessing from God. We are to honour the lifeblood. We are to honour uh, that God has given us animals for food and not abuse them, right? but be thankful for them and not drink or, or eat them alive 
or to uh, have the blood in them when we eat them. Thirdly, we continue in our personal responsibility before a holy God. We can't blame others for our own sins. We can't say it was this person's fault, this person did this to me, so I did that back to them. Uh, That sure might be a reason why you did something, but what you do is always your responsibility. And so to be blessed, we need to live under God's word. But that's not the end of it. Because God God has given these commandments uh, to Noah and his descendants. He's given these commandments to humanity. But it's not enough to hear them. We must do them. It's not enough just to hear, but God's word calls us to obey. If you want God's blessing, you can't just read it. You can't just know of it. You have to do it. We receive the blessing by our obedience to God's word. And in fact, I think that's one of the reasons our text is, this chapter 9 is shaped in this way. It begins with a blessing and finishes with a curse. It shows us what life ought to be like under the blessing of God's word and what it's like when we abuse it, when we mistreat the image of God and we misuse what he has created for us, like getting drunk and shaming ourselves and falling uh, about naked and passing out. I mean, it seems that Noah was so drunk that he passed out uh, from his vineyard that he made. So something that was good, he abused it and so was shamed for it. So what's the obvious application here? If you want a good life, obey God's word. Now, a good way to think about it is like this. Um, Let's say you went to the shops and you bought a new laptop and you decided that you needed a hammer, but you instead of buying a hammer at the shops, you bought a laptop instead, but you were going to use the laptop as a hammer. And so you go to... You know, hammer um, two pieces of wood together with a nail and you smash the laptop uh, on to- onto the nail to try and hammer the two pieces of wood together. Now that's ridiculous, isn't it? What's going to happen? Well, if you try and use a computer as a hammer, you're going to have a broken computer, an ineffective hammer, it's not going to work very well and you've lost a lot of money and perhaps someone will be angry at you for your foolishness of wasting your finances and being very foolish in your behaviour. Now, why would I use a ridiculous uh, example like this? Think about it. You use things for what they are designed for. You follow the instructions. If something is designed for something, like a computer, you use it for computing. What do you use a hammer for? Hammering. How much more the human life? Wouldn't we follow the designer and and the word of the designer in the way that we use it? So it might seem ridiculous to use a computer, a laptop as a hammer, but how much more the human life? So the blessing of God is to live under God's word. He's given us clear commandments, but we must be obedient to them. It's obvious. It's actually uh, in the common sense and the natural law of the world that if you do the things that are designed in, uh, in this way, it will be good. And if you abuse or misuse or don't do them in the way they're designed, it will be bad. But there is one last thing uh, about living under God's word, and that is there must be atonement for sin. There must be atonement for sin. That is, when God's law is broken, payment is 
required. Now, we get a small idea of it here when it comes to life. That is, if, someone's, if you take a person's life, your life is required of you. Your life essentially is forfeit. But again, as these are foundational commandments, as we work our way through the Bible, we see that sin always must be paid for. That is, when uh, God's people became the nation of Israel, every sin had to be paid for. That is, if you sinned against someone else, you had to pay them back. If you stole something from them, you had to pay them back and give them 20% on top. When you sinned against God in various ways, what did you have to do? You had to take your sacrifice to the temple and make an offering in order to stay in right relationship with God. Someone must always pay. Now, if we fast forward to today, do we think that sin must always be atoned for, must always be paid for when we abuse, mistreat others or what God has made for us? Well, someone always pays, don't they? Think about it this way. When your life falls apart because you've mistreated the key relationships in your life, the key people in your life, that's you paying for it. God has given you a sort of justice in that. If you abuse people, you will be lonely. If, and, of course, uh, others might pay uh, for sins. If, if someone sins against us and they are you know, ostracised from the family because of their sins against us, again, that's a sort of justice. The problem is we, don't often, th- we often think about it horizontally, but we don't often think about it vertically. The Bible tells us that God accounts for our sin. God is concerned utterly about how we behave and how we treat one another. Now, I think we know this intrinsically. Uh, There's a man called Harusan, who is a Japanese man who's serving in the Georgian Foreign Legion uh, during the Ukraine war at the moment. I was reading an article about him. Uh, He was formerly a Yakuza, which is like a a Japanese gangster part of the uh, criminal gangs over there. And his father was a Yakuza. And so naturally, he followed in the family business. Uh, At the age of 40, he was in jail because of the path that he was leading, and he realised it was only downhill for him unless he made a change. He thought to himself, I don't want to be like them. I thought I have to make every effort every day to change myself. So when he got out of prison, he decided that he would go to the Ukraine to fight to, get this, I came to Ukraine to atone for my past sins. And of course, uh, during, the course uh, during the course of his time there, he almost died in a battle, but his resolve is still strong. Uh, as part of the closing of the article, it says, Harul-san feels he still has a long way to go to atone for his past sins. He feels like he has to pay, even through his own lifeblood, for his own sins. Interestingly, uh, this idea, which is built into our human psyche, as we, particularly as we get to the end of our lives or at significant junctures in our lives, we look back and go, what about all of that? What about all those things that I've done? What about those relationships that I've missed? What are those opportunities that I've missed? What about the times I should have stepped up but I didn't? All of us have an account uh, which we must pay in one way or another. Interestingly, God is very not only aware of our account But the Bible tells us that Jesus came to atone for our sins. Listen to this from 1 John 4. 
It says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we have this fascinating uh, thing going on in Genesis chapter 9. It tells us if you want to live a blessed life, you need to live under God's word. You need to be a person who follows his commandments. You need to be a person who is actually obedient, doesn't just hear them, but does them. And you will live a good life. But also, you need to be a person who comes to God to deal with your sin. Because it must be paid for. It must be paid for, and God is willing to pay it for you. So to have the blessing of God, we must live under his word, but we must also know the grace of his covenant. Now, I've also been uh, reading a book uh, about Martin Luther, the uh, 16th century reformer, who actually really kicked off the Reformation. And uh, Martin Luther grew up in a time uh, in the 16th century, so about 500 years ago, when all of the Western world was saturated by Christianity. That is, if you were born in the Western world in the 16th century, that is in, in Europe for the most part, you were a Christian. You were just considered a Christian by default, whether you believed or not. Everyone thought of themselves as being religious and being a Christian. There was no other option. That seems very unusual for us today when we think that everyone must choose their own destiny. But in that time, one choice, Christian, and everyone agreed about it. However, in Martin Luther's time, the faith had become distorted. God was not seen as a sorry, benevolent, good and kind father, but as an angry judge, always on the precipice of judgment, he's just waiting for you to mess up that he might judge you. And that's how the majority of people felt. Luther grew up with this understanding of God, informed by his culture and reinforced by the teachings of the church. But when he began to study the Bible for himself and was confronted by the miserable chasm that separated humanity and God and his inability to cross over it and have his sins covered, he naturally grew more and more depressed. He, like many, were forced to find some solace in the constant cycle of confession and penance in the Roman Catholic Church, always paying down their debt to time in purgatory for their sins. Basic teaching, or one of the basic teachings of the Roman Catholic Church is that uh, we have so many sins stacked up against us and not enough merit to earn God's favour that almost all of humanity must go to a place between heaven and hell called purgatory, where you are cleansed, over many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of years, this was the teaching of the church in order to get to heaven. That was the rules. Can you imagine that? That's all you got to look forward to. And Martin Luther, being a very sensitive and diligent man, he could never see a way out. In fact, the more of God's word he understood, the further he felt from God. As he read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, he thought, I, I never stack up to these rules. I never stack up to God's law. And so he realized that this impossible chasm was growing deeper. His time in purgatory seemed to be growing so long. Was it worth it after all? And so the God he was taught about, the angry judge, he began to hate him. Part of the teaching was that uh, God really wouldn't listen to you and, and uh, take your, um, you know, be merciful to you because he was such a holy God that, and Jesus was 
really more God than man, at least that was a teaching in the day. So you had to go to various saints who were so good that they got promoted straight to heaven. And you would pray to them like uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary and others in order to get in. And so he spent his whole life, even as he became a monk, trying to find salvation, looking for a way in the door. But Martin was sorely mistaken. You see, in our text, we see not an angry God waiting, just waiting that people would be judged by him. No, we see a benevolent, kind and good God that only as a last resort will bring his judgment upon people. And we see that very clearly in this idea of a covenant. Now, In the text, we see that God says, uh, verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. What's a covenant? It's a bit like a contract. So two parties come together and they agree on particular terms and who will uphold the covenant and how. And they are often given a sign. So often often an animal was sacrificed as a sign of blood for a covenant. And we see that later uh, in the Bible. But here, the sign of the covenant is in the sky. It's in fact an ancient weapon, a bow, as in a bow, an arrow. And of course we know that today. What, what do we think of? A rainbow, right? That's the sign that God has given here in the text, a bow. What direction is the bow pointing? Up or down? Up. <laughs> the bow and the arrow would go up. Now that is very symbolic, right? Because if a bow is pointed towards you, you are the one who is receiving the judgment or the aggression. Who's the bow pointing to? Is it pointing to the earth? Is it pointing to humanity? No, the bow is pointing to heaven, pointing to God. Hebrew scholars have looked into this and realised that God is pointing to himself. He has said, I will never again judge the world like I did with the flood. I won't do it like that again. How can God still be just? How can God still require blood for blood? How can God still be a just God who takes care of everyone and will right every wrong and not deal with our sins? Only if he himself is willing to take the judgment. And so the bow is turned toward him. God, just as he has delegated responsibility to humanity to take, uh, take responsibility for our own sins, he's also said that he will bear the justice himself. What does this tell us? This tells us that the message of the Bible is one about God keeping his promises, God showing us that his covenant, his promise to humanity is one of grace. Have a look at it here. God has given instructions to Noah and his family and they have failed. They have failed dramatically. Even right at the beginning, they've failed. It's the same for Adam and Eve. Everything looked good and they failed. And yet God has made a way that he, by his grace, will save them. He will point the bow toward himself and Jesus will come and save them. Now this is uh, very important. For us, because many of us feel a little bit like Martin Luther when it comes to our image of God. 
many of us feel like he is just waiting for us to mess up, that the bow is pointed directly at us and he has an arrow in the string. And yet the reverse is very much the opposite. The reverse is very much true. God is waiting to give you his mercy. His bow is at the ready, pointed at himself here, because when we get to the New Testament, Jesus will be on a cross, paying for our sins, atoning for our sins. Well, we have failed to keep his commandments. Jesus would stand in our place. He would make a way that this vast chasm between humanity and God would be covered. How? By a cross. Martin Luther himself discovered this gospel, that God was full of love, mercy and grace and that Jesus had given himself to atone for his sins and his shame and he was transformed by it. When this happened, Luther recalled an anecdotal incident when he was young. It was tradition uh, in Germany in the 16th century for children to go from house to house singing and asking for sausages from their neighbours. But when a man appeared and started running towards little Martin Luther and his friends, he misinterpreted the situation and thought the man was coming to hit them and beat them, and so he ran away and hid. However, he found out later the man actually had sausages with him and was bringing them to these children as a gift. Luther described how this was how he had felt about God. He had always seen God as an angry man ready to punish him at any time, so he ran away and hid. But when he realised that God's heart was for him, that God gave his son as a gift and Jesus is the benevolent God that he'd spent his whole life running from, he opened his heart and received Jesus as Lord and Saviour. We know this in human relationships too, that distance creates a bit of a caricature, that the way that we think about others, the negatives grow and the positives diminish. And yet God is very much the same. When we have distance from him, our our wrong impressions about him grow. We think he's not just or he's not loving. And yet when we come to him, like Luther did, when we look at Jesus, when we come to him in his word, we realise that God is just and merciful in the same stroke. That a God who is holy and gives us his word and requires a reckoning for the life of man. That's the holiness and the justice of God. And that same God would point his bow at himself is revealed to us in Jesus. One God who would give his life because he is waiting to pour out his mercy on his people. That is his disposition. So if you want to have the blessing of God, If you want to be blessed, if you want a good life where you are joyful, not just happy, but joyful, where the circumstances of life do not determine how you are feeling, you must live under his word. You must know the grace of his covenant. And thirdly, you must let him cover your shame. At the end of uh, chapter 9, we really see the helplessness of sin. That sin is a constant feature of the world, even with the blessing of God. So what does Noah do when he gets out? Well, he plants a vineyard. Uh, you know, natural thing to do. He's got plenty of time on his hands. 
Uh, it's got his sons working for him, you assume. So they get to work. They start developing the earth, following God's commandment. And yet, when they have a great harvest of wine, it's all fermented. It's ready to go. He drinks way too much, gets blackout drunk, falls asleep naked. And so his son discovers him and shames him for it. Notice the pattern in the text. So Noah sins and shames himself. He misuses what God has given him right, and gets himself into a very vulnerable position. Then his son goes in, Ham, and goes and tells his brothers, essentially shaming his father before them. Then Noah uh, curses Ham's son, Canaan. See this cycle? Someone is shamed, another person shames them further or seeks to, then the father further shames the son. It just goes on and on from generation to generation. Can you see the pattern here? Sin has almost put us in this helpless state where sin always begets sin. The sins of the fathers seem to pass on to the children. And notice that shame is also a result of sin. See, God requires a sort of... um, God requires a guilt for sin. So that is, there's an accounting record. You are guilty of sin if you have sin. There's an accounting record of it. It's penal, that is, that there's a a justice element to it and you must pay for it. But shame is something that's very personal. It sort of sits upon the image of God and darkens it, it blackens it. Shame is personal. And we see that it's progressive. In fact, uh, So Noah shames himself, but his son uh, Ham seeks to further shame him. Shame seems to be built upon shame. And yet, oddly in our text, verse 23, Shem and Japheth, they cover their father's shame. They walk in backwards, cover him up, protecting him from his own sin. Isn't that interesting? One person seeks to increase the shame, right, and perhaps take over from his father and get rid of him and mock him, you know, rub it in for what he's done that's been stupid and foolish, and yet the others seem to cover it. Now, I think this is important for us to realise a couple of things. One is you have two choices when it comes to the sins of others. You can seek to cover it or you can seek to shame them. Sin... Uh, often leads to shame, depending on the public nature of it, depending on who discovers you, often leads to shame. And you have a choice. You can turn it into gossip and further shame the person or you can seek to cover it. One is a choice of love. One is a choice of hate. We have two choices before us when it comes to sin and shame. But something else our text tells us, and I think this is very important because Really, Noah's had a great run up until this point. Why is chapter 9, verses 18 to 27 there? Why are they there? I think it's to show us that even though Noah, as we read earlier, was a righteous man, a standout in his generation, he himself sinned. He himself was shamed. No one is righteous. No, not one. Noah was not the saviour of the world that he was said to be, perhaps. 
No, he himself was a sinner just like everyone else. He himself was caught up in the cycle of sin, shame and curse just like everyone else. It shows us that we all need a saviour. Every one of us. I was, um, listen, I was reading uh, some of the, uh, the bit, bit like eulogy messages um, for after Tim Keller died this week. Um, sort of one of my heroes of the faith uh, died on Friday. US time and uh, people were you know talk about him in, in very wonderful language um, and you sort of think about someone like this and, and, and you think they're so good you know and people talk about how he, they couldn't see if he'd ever done anything wrong and whatever else and people are very kind uh, in the way they speak about the dead um, of course but Tim Keller himself uh, would say he's much worse uh, than everyone uh, would have thought so about him. Um, and that kind of attitude that Tim Keller had about himself uh, during his life here on earth is actually one that we all need because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you think you're not a sinner, uh, then you will be confused, angry and prideful most of your life. However, if you know you're a sinner but you have no way out, you will be constantly filled with shame, with no one to cover it for you and always trying different ways to cover your own shame but it never working out. I mentioned earlier uh, Eustace and uh, the Pevensey kids, um, Edmund and Lucy, in the book The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. This arrogant and uh, prideful boy Eustace is drawn into this amazing adventure uh, they're sailing on a boat uh, trying to uh, r- rescue some uh, different people uh, from various islands uh, with uh, all these magical uh, creatures and uh, people in the land of Narnia. And they're on this boat, they're on this adventure, and finally they arrive on an island. Eustace enters a cave, which he doesn't realise is a dragon cave, and he picks up this dragon's treasure, and then he falls down to sleep and rest. But Eustace was following the path of his life that he'd always followed. His arrogance and pride had driven him to become a very dragonish person, layer upon layer in his behaviour towards others, because he was so prideful, he always blamed others, he was always filled with self-pity. He could never see that he was the cause of his own curse. And so he continued down this path uh, in his mind, But then in Providence, his experience of becoming fully dragonized, because when he put on this um, golden um, uh, sort of bangle around his arm, he actually turned into a dragon himself. So in his mind, he'd become like a dragon, and now he became a dragon in body. In his life, he realized that he had no way to change himself. He was stuck in this constant cycle of sin and shame, sin and shame. Others didn't like him because of the way that he was behaving, but he knew he couldn't do it himself. He needed someone else to step into his life and to take off his shame and to make him new. He finally was met by this great lion called Aslan who offered to take off the dragon's skin. You see, Eustace had realised what he'd been like when he'd become a dragon. And he was told by Aslan that he would have to undress him, that is, literally take off his dragon skin. And yet every time he took off a layer, 
like a reptile and stepped out. He was still a dragon. This is what it says. Then the lion said, you have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty near, nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like billy-o, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I'd thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. And then he caught a hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. You see, we try and cover our shame, you know, with living a better life. We try and cover our shame by working harder. We try and cover our shame, you know, like the... Uh, the Yakuza uh, man by you know, atoning for our own sins and yet it doesn't work. We need someone to humble us right down to our flesh and for him to stand in our place to take our sins upon himself. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for the call to receive the blessing. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would help us to receive this blessing of you by 